welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Today I have a special guest with me. Carrie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi everyone, um, my screen name is Carrie Hench and um, it comes from two of my favorite passions, uh, one which is horror. Carrie, as you know, is one of the most famous books of Stephen King and Hench is sort of like a cinnamon from Dominions, which I'm a big fan of, but my favorite pastime of all time is history. Um, I have a BA in history from the University of Texas at El Paso. My favorite topic is Tudor history. I have two primaries, uh, two primary uh, sites on Facebook, which is Tudor Nurse with Glasses, and the other is Tudor's Fact versus Fiction, where I delve into Tudor history and also the Wars of the Roses and try to dispel as many myths as I can that usually come from uh, period dramas like The White Queen, The White Princess, and what we're going to be talking right now, which is the Tudors. Oh, now you got me intrigued. Who killed the princes in the tower? My <laughs> <laughs> biggest suspect, and I know I'm going to receive a lot of backlash for this because it's a very hot topic right now, is Richard III. I think he had most motive and he had most access. And I know a lot of people will say, no, that's not true. Margaret Buford's the one that killed the princes in the tower. <laughs> And the thing, the, the thing that I have a problem with that, with that hypothesis, because it's really more of a hypothesis than a theory, is that um, Margaret Beaufort, um, through her third husband, or fourth if you want to get technical, and count her betrothal, anyway, so Thomas Downley would have such a hard time getting in that tower and killing the princess. I mean, the, the only person that really had access to that was Richard III. And, the person that he appointed to be the keeper of the tower was somebody that he completely trusted, and he would have received no orders except from his king. So again, the the main suspect remains Richard. And until you can find me a letter or something more tangible that that deflects the blame away from Richard and to Margaret, then I'll say, okay, you know what? Then maybe Margaret was the main suspect. Maybe she was the main culprit. But until that happens, for me, the main culprit will be Richard. I, you know what, it's funny because I tend to agree with you as well. And I know how, you know, excited people get about this topic. And it's either, you know, you're looking at it's either Richard III or it's Margaret. Um, and, you know, I don't think we'll ever find out who it truly was, but I'm on the same page with you as far as Richard had the most motive at the time. So good. I'm glad we started off on a good note. We're on the same page. Well, let's talk a little bit then about the Tudors on Showtime. Now, this series was, I think, you know, other than some books that I had, had read previously, was really, for me, the series that opened my eyes up to the Tudors and made me kind of excited to learn a little bit more about them as well. Um, what did you think about the series? About the series, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with it. On the one hand, I love it because it really reawakened people's interest in Tudor history. And, you know, people who had previously given up in the Tudors because they found it just not relevant anymore, they found it too boring, or they said, you know, what's the point? They found themselves reading um, the same old biographies they had read before and revisiting new books. And we also have this explosion of new biographies of the Tudors, new documentaries, so on that one hand, I think it was really awesome. And another reason why I loved it is because it was the first historical drama that I had ever seen that really deconstructed the images of Mary Tudor, Thomas Cromwell, uh, Thomas More, and I'll even say Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn to a certain extent in the way that um, 
with Thomas Cromwell, you you'd always see him as a very gangster, very cold type, very cold type kind of guy. I mean, in End of a Thousand Days, which was my first historical movie that I saw as a little girl when I was six and I was learning English, I always had the wrong impression of Cromwell because he appeared as a very gangster, mobster kind of guy. And then in other series like the BBC, the 70s, and then in the film with both of them, with Keith Mitchell, The Six Wives, Henry VIII, and then Henry VIII and Six Wives, he appears very, very cold. And in The Man of, in the Man of All Seasons, he appeared as the main villain. So I love how they finally gave humanity into the character of Cromwell without whitewashing him. And the same can be said about Thomas More. He appears very sane-like, but at the same time, somebody who had a lot of personal demons he didn't know how to deal with them and he had that very dark persona to him and with mary tudor she no longer was the old fanatical crazy lady but someone someone that we could see uh, was you know going into the as you know going into a very dark place but we, but we could understand why she was you know why she was becoming the person that she would eventually become so in that sense i was very glad that they were able to deconstruct those negative stereotypes but on the other hand, um, my love-hate relationship comes from the way that they took so much liberty, starting with um, Henry VIII's uncle being killed in the opening scene, which we know is completely not true because his uncle Jasper, I mean, died, you know, died um, during his father's reign. And then also the thing that they did with um, Mary and Margaret, which was my biggest beef with the series. Oh, um, mine too. Oh my, I mean, and Michael Hurst's um, reasoning for doing that was absolutely awful. I mean, in an interview that um, appeared in BBC History Magazine, he said that he did it because uh, there were too many Marys and he thought that people weren't, weren't going to ca catch on. And I thought that was very condescending of him because, you know, um, people are more intelligent than producers give them credit for. And the way that they could have done it is that, you know, they could have just mentioned, they could have just done these two characters saying, okay, Princess Mary, um, you know, she went, she went to marry King, the, the King of France, Louis the, uh, Louis the 12th, then she married Charles Brandon, and we named our daughter Mary, in the case of Henry VIII and Catherine Aragon's daughter, in honor of her. And then they could have, and then they could have said, we also have uh, the older sister, uh, Queen Margaret, and they could have done a flashback, or they could have just, um, you know, do a scene where she is in, where she is in Scotland, where she is in Scotland, you know, trying to deal, you know, trying to safeguard her son's position, because there were so many, uh, there were so many things going back then at the time the show started in Scotland. There were so many intrigues, so many backstabbing, and if they had done that, I think the show would have been even more interesting. But that's my take. No, I, I, I love your passion for it and your knowledge um, that goes along with it, too. One of the other things that really bothered me about the, the Mary slash Margaret character in the Showtime, the Tudors, was the fact that they showed um, her murdering her husband, smothering him with a pillow. Like, really? Oh, my God. When I saw that scene, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, the, first, the first words that came out of my mouth... Uh, was WTF? <laughs> That's my native language, obviously. And then, and, and then I started laughing. And it was funny because I was watching, I was watching that episode with a friend, and a friend of mine, who, who back then she was not, she was not that much into history, and she, she also laughed because 
even though she was she wasn't that much into history, she still thought it was pretty funny because she told me, you know, I don't. She told me, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think a queen would have done that. I mean, I think, I, I think that a queen back then would have been caught so easily. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. That's why I'm laughing too. It's so <laughs> stupid. Right. Yeah. There were, you know, there were so many different storylines in this series that made you kind of shake your head a little bit and say, why on earth did they choose to write it that way? You know, as an example, um, killing off Henry Fitzroy when he was just a little boy, you know, why did they choose to do that when he was so young, when we know he lived to be a teenager? Exactly. And I think that if they hadn't killed him, they could have delved into very, very interesting uh, storylines. For example, we know that, as you said, he lived, uh, he, he lived, he lived on up until his teens, and I would even say young adult, depending on what you consider teens and young adult. But anyway, so he married, you know, one of Anne Boleyn's cousins, and they could have delved into a lot of intrigue that was going on, you know, between the Howards, and then the Howards turning on the Boleyns, and the Boleyns trying to find ways, you know, to save themselves, to save themselves after Anne Boleyn miscarried, and after all of her enemies were conspiring against her, and then the question that came after she was executed. And when Henry married Jane was, if he didn't have, if he if he didn't get to have a male heir by Jane or any other future wife, was he gonna make Henry Fitzroy his son? I mean, was that right. gonna open a whole new can of worms? I mean, can you just imagine the very interesting storyline storylines if they just kept Henry Fitzroy? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of frustrating when you sit and you watch it because you you just you want more than than what they provided to you sometimes. Definitely. Another um, storyline, which I think came from season two, that kind of bothered me, and I think that they combined two characters again, um, was Anne Stanhope, or Anne Seymour, the wife of Edward Seymour, having her little affairs with um, Sir Francis Bryan and with Thomas Seymour. And that's another thing, as far as I know, um, there is no proof that that happened and that there was possibly a combination of Edward Seymour's first wife Catherine does that sound about right to you yeah it does and you know around around the time that they introduced Anne Stanhope I had you know I had already seen all the historical dramas that came before because like I said when I was a little kid um, these movies were actually my way of learning the English the, the English language um, I did my mom my mom worked a lot so I didn't get to see her that much and my dad was you know, my dad was uh, off and gone because he had more than two jobs. I didn't get to see him a lot. So seeing these movies were provided sort of a companionship and also provided sort of my introduction, you know, learning about learning about, uh, you know, English. And sometimes when they when they snuck some words from Middle English, you know, from from the English that they spoke back then. So, you know, I could, you know, it was also my way of learning more about that environment. So when they introduced Anne Seymour, I was really, uh, when they introduced um, Anne Stanhope, I was really mad because I had seen the way that she was portrayed in um, the BBC Sussex Wives of Henry VIII, which to this date is the most fairest portrayal that they've done of her. And in that series, she appeared as ambitious, as gossipy, but at the same time as somebody who could, you know, who um, could who would be best friends with the Lady Mary, best friends with Jane Seymour, which we know that in real life she was best friends with Lady Mary. I mean, Lady Mary when she became queen, she even parted her. And seeing the way that they twisted her character really angered me. And after the series ended, I read this really good um, this triple biography of 
of the Seymour siblings, Jane, Thomas, and Edward by William Seymour, and it's called The Ordeal by Ambition. And in that biography, while the author is not as sympathetic to Anne Stanhope as Rita Warnicke was in her biography of Tudor women, he still does his best to deconstruct the negative stereotypes that come about her. And one of the things that I, and after I read that biography, as you said, I, you know, I noticed that, you know, probably that's what Hearst did yet again, thinking that we're going to be too stupid to (laughs) distinguish between two wives. And he probably said, oh, you know what, I'm probably going to mix Catherine Fillow and Anne Stanhope, you know, and do a lot of crazy storylines. And that completely, and again, after reading after reading that biography and reading other biography, uh, being other biographies um, about the Seymours and about this woman, you know that made me even more angry because Anne Stanhope is such an interesting figure and in my point of view, one of the most maligned figures of the Tudor era. I mean, you still see a lot of articles that portray her as this heartbeat, as this evil woman, this vile, despicable woman, and seeing and seeing how she was portraying Tudors was just absolutely horrible. That's an interesting, interesting standpoint that you have, because I guess I am one of those people who have always, you know, seen her as wicked um, because of how she treated Catherine Parr later in life. And, you know, regarding Catherine's jewels and how she felt, you know, from the, just from the stuff that I've read, how she felt like, you know, she should be treated as a queen herself since she was the Lord Protector's wife. I guess that for me, that's what kind of turned me off when it came to to Anne Seymour was I just felt like, yeah, she was very ambitious. And I felt like in a way she was malicious towards Catherine Parr. Like, I don't know why. I don't know. Do you, have you read that or do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, because um, Catherine Parr actually is one of my, um, she's one of my favorite subjects of this era. So uh, I, I was def- uh, so I was definitely, so yes, yeah, so I was definitely a little bit, um, I wouldn't say turned off, but uh, um, saddened by the way that, you know, that, by, by the way that that um, relationship between the sisters-in-law descended into and how it also um, influenced, and I would say influenced the way that Thomas and Edward, you know, after Catherine died, things got worse between them. And so on that side, you know, I'm not going to contradict you because it's true. The way that Anne Stanhope acted, acted towards her sister-in-law was really petty. But at the same time, I think that we're talking about the Tudor era, and we know that the Tudor dynasty, even with Edward VI in power, was not a very stable dynasty, especially with the wars of religion. It was becoming, you know, the Tudor's power is becoming more unstable, and that, contrib- that contributed to their paranoia and to the way that they descended, they descended you know, into thinking that everybody was a suspect. And you see it with Mary I, you see it with Elizabeth I even in her last, in her last years. And so I think that as, you know, as people were trying to secure the power around this boy king and Edward being as ambitious as he was and his wife being as ambitious as she was as well, it, it's not strange to say that they became very paranoid even of their own shadow, in this case, their own family members. And Anne Stanhope, knowing that Catherine Parr was more popular, she had more friends, and she was also a leader among the, among the Protestant faction in England, she, there, there also might have been a little bit of jealousy there and a little bit of feeling threatened that, you know, this woman is much more popular than I am. She's much, she's much more scholarly than I am. She's published two books 
which have been two bestsellers. She's the leader among this past infection. And if she, if her, if my brother-in-law wants, that she can use, she can use her because she, she was also, she was also seen as a surrogate mother for for Edward. You know, she can also use her to turn her against me and my husband. So I think that played into Anne Stanhope's hostility against Catherine Parr. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a good viewpoint. I you know, and I appreciate being able to have a discussion like this because I don't know if you know how, you know, I love Thomas Seymour. So I feel like between your knowledge of Catherine Parr and hopefully the knowledge that I have of Thomas Seymour that we're able to give a fair representation of these two people, not characters, because as we know, they're real people. And that's the one thing that I always try to get across in my blogs is is that these aren't characters in a book you know these were actual people who lived they had lives they made poor decisions or they made good decisions and you know we should look at them for what they really were not just characters yeah exactly um and i was you know i've been writing a little bit about this and because i do see a lot of this I don't want to say I don't want to say ignorance because I don't want to accuse people when I don't know them. But I would say I would rather say misinformation when people are talking about these historical figures, and a lot of it does come from historical dramas like the Tudors, the White Princess, and so many others, but also from people's desire, you know, to see history as a morality play mm-hmm. instead of instead of what it really was—a complex time. And one author once said that. The past is, you know, the past is an unknown era. The past with with its own rules, and it's true. We can try to comprehend the past as much as we can, but we're never going to fully comprehend it as as much as we want. And people, and people's way of dealing with this is turning history into a, into a morality play where there's heroes, where there's heroines, where there where there's where, where there's princesses, where there's villains, where there's this, all these kinds of stuff. And sometimes people get angry when I tell them that that's just not how history is, you know. Exactly. No, I couldn't agree with you more. So, I, you know, I tend to get off track a little bit, so I, I apologize for that. But is there, okay. <laughs> is there um, another scene or another storyline from the Tudor series that you can think of that you, like, felt very passionately about that it was incorrect and that you want to make right? Okay, so the thing that I want to focus, the thing that I want to focus now, and it's gonna, it's probably something that I shouldn't because it's gonna open a whole new can of worms. But whatever, I'm ready. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, after so much, uh, after so much, you know, things that we can take in Tudor pages, especially after many fans that can take, can tend to become really hostile. Who cares? So here it is, <laughs> Anne Boleyn, and this is what this is what irked me about the way that Anne Boleyn was portrayed in certain scenes is that she was portrayed as very, I would say, a little bit too promiscuous and a little bit too permissive and a little bit too much of a woman ahead of her times. And that really irked me because I love Anne Boleyn and I've made no secret of this in my pages. Anne Boleyn has become, has become my favorite of the six wives. I really, uh, I really love reading about her. A lot of biographies. She, I mean, I just, I just admire her character. I admire her passion. That being said, that being said, um, I always, 
make sure you know to post that she was a woman of her time she was not ahead of them and one thing that the tutors did is that it deconstructed some negative stereotypes of her uh, for example in many other series even in Anna of a thousand days which you know portrayed her as a sort of a martyr saint like figure they still had her being as this woman ahead of her times and they didn't focus on her relig religiosity which was a big component of Anne Boleyn's life and the tutors yes they did focus a little bit more on her religiosity which I was really thankful for that but on the other hand they also turned her into a modern into a modern woman and I don't think she was I mean I think she was a woman belonging a, a product of her times and the reason why some people often say well you know she was very jealous the way that she acted when she found out that Henry uh, was sleeping with other women was sleeping with other women or the way that she acted so differently from her predecessors and the reason and I will always respond well you have to look at her background Anne was raised as a courtier not as a queen Catherine was raised to be a queen since she was since she was a child Anne was not, but uh, she she served she served many queens. She served Queen Claude. She served Queen Catherine of Aragon, and so due to that knowledge, due to that service, you know, she had some idea of what of what being a queen consort entailed. But by the time that she became Henry's royal consort and she was crowned, she was under a lot of pressure because many people many people consider her consider her a royal concubine. I mean, even even her stepdaughter. Said to her, said to her that she wasn't going to accept her help, but if the king's concubine, meaning her, was going to speak on her behalf, then she would be thankful. So she was under a lot of pressure. She had enemies in high places. She could depend on nobody but her, but her family, her maternal family, and even her maternal family. She was probably aware that they were going to turn on her as soon as, as you know, as soon as the king got tired of her and turned his side to somebody else, which was what happened. And the tutors made her into this, I don't know, like this proto-feminist type who was, who was always having these very um, modern ideas for her times, was always, was always, you know, like very, like very much shouting, like very much, um, you know, breaking the status quo. And that, and again, that really irked me because that's not, that's not who Anne Boleyn was. I love it. Now, the question of the hour for you now, Carrie, is who, which actress was your favorite who played Anne Boleyn? My favorite is Dorothy Tutin, the one from The Six Wife of Henry VIII. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you know what? And that's one of the movies I have not seen, so I will definitely have to see it because for me, it's always been Natalie Dormer, even though it drove me mad that they couldn't give her brown contacts. <laughs> like, oh, I know. One of the easiest things they could have done to make it a little bit more believable, but I really thought she did a fantastic job, um, you know, to me showing who in my head I'd always thought Anne Boleyn was at the time, you know, then the smirk. I loved the smirk that she always had in the film. It made me feel like somehow she was able to channel a little bit of Anne herself. Oh, definitely. I um, mean, she was able to channel that, and also, like I said, she was able to break the negative stereotypes that come about Anne. That she, you know, that she was immoral, that she wasn't religious, and they were able to show that that's not true. You know, she was a woman of moral convictions, and her religiosity was actually a big component of who she was. And they were able to show that in little snippets in season two. And she's telling her servants, which, by the way, was something that really happened. And she's telling her royal servants, her ladies, and her ladies and and the men servants that hey, 
in the old ways are over. Here is this Bible translated into English. You're free to read it whenever you can. And like I said, that's something that really happened. Also, when she fights Rambo and she says to him, "Why are you giving all the money from the monasteries? And why are you putting it into the king's pocket? Why why aren't you directing to something else?" I would have loved if they had expanded that scene into her saying, "I I want this. I want this money." I want these funds to be transferred into constructing like a hospital or an educational center, which it's what she really wanted, and that's the reason why Cromwell turned on her because she wanted those funds to be directed to charity, and and so you know, but uh, but but I, but I still like what they did, but just but it's just that my biggest beef is that I think that they still promoted Anne as this very proto-feminist type, and again. It wouldn't bother it. It wouldn't bother me so much if you know if it if it wasn't as mainstream as it is, and that's a, and that's the problem when it comes to to figures like Anne Boleyn, who are so controversial. Controversial is that they're seen they're seen as this either as these either heroines or villains. You know, you either love them or completely hate them, and that's really detrimental when you're when you know when you want to have a serious debate about these historical figures because as we said before there there were humans and there were very complex complex figures and Anne Boleyn as everybody else was very complex and you know turning her into a heroine or turning her into a villain in my view um, it's it really does her a disservice because it turns her into a caricature I, I definitely agree with you there. Now, Carrie, if there was one person from the Tudor period that you could sit down and have dinner with, who would it be? Oh, that's a really tough one. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. I know, right? Um, I guess I would choose the one we're talking about, Amberlynn. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's funny. That's the one that a lot of people will pick. And I feel like I would probably pick her as well because I would hope she could answer questions. Yeah, I the question that I would uh, the question that I would ask her would be um, would be about her um, religiosity because there's still a lot of debates going on about that because on one hand Chapuis who sometimes exaggerated a lot of a lot of what he said sure. said said that he, she was more Lutheran than Luther himself and we know from from other primary sources you know from people that knew her. That that was that wasn't so, and I mean, and also what comes from her from her reign, from her short reign, uh, while being married to Henry, was that she did advocate for certain reforms, but most of those reforms were in Lutheran, and she was mostly inspired, you know, from Swiss thinkers, which were who were not who were very very who had a very different doctrine than Luther. I mean, they also they also were were against were against the mass, you know, the theory of transubstantiation which is a big thing in Catholic doctrine but on the other hand they were um, they were more radical in other areas and more modern in other areas so I would really ask her about her religiosity you know just what what was her stance to know where she was coming from to have a more clear idea of who she was perfect well Carrie I think we'll probably stop there today thank you so much for joining me for my podcast today it's nice to have somebody else to talk to for a change well thank you for inviting me